Welcome to the Media Navigators, brought to you by the World Media Group. My name is Belinda Barker and I'm the Chief Executive. This is our seventh podcast and the subject for today is around inclusion and specifically raising inclusion to the board level. We work in an international industry and inclusion is vitally important to our success. Um, The sector has improved really quite dramatically over the years since since I first joined um, the industry, but yet we do still have a long way to go, um, particularly in certain sectors, which is why it's it's really important that that we continue to think about it um, and strive towards greater inclusivity, which is why I'm really delighted today to be talking to two women um, who have um, a real change makers in their own right. And I'd like to introduce my co-host today, Dana Whitaker. Dana is the sales director for UK and Germany for Wall Street Journal Barons Group. She also sits on their diversity and inclusion committee and is the board director for the World Media Group. Welcome, Dana. How are you today? I'm great. Thanks, Belinda. And thank you for having me here. And welcome, Jan. It is so exciting to have this discussion today with someone with your experience and passion for change and inclusion. Jan Gooding, if you don't know, is known to be one of the UK's most experienced marketing leaders and is outspoken on a range of subjects from building global brands to inclusive leadership. She has enjoyed a successful marketing career where she has worked with FTSE 100 companies, but most laterally as the group brand director at Aviva. In her final role at Aviva, Jen was their first ever global inclusion director, and she was responsible for introducing the global, the groundbreaking policy of equal parental leave. Jen now pursues a portfolio of interest as an executive coach at her own firm, non-executive director of PAMCO and Given, and is president of the Market Research Society. She's also a trustee and former chair of Stonewall. It's great to have you here today right now, Jen. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much. Well, it's fantastic. And Jan, um, if I may, please open the discussion for us today. Um, You enjoyed a long and highly successful career in marketing. And I think everyone listening would be very curious to know about what prompted you to take that significant gear change and take on a role of the global head of inclusion for Aviva. Yes, it's interesting. Um, There were two things that came together. One was that I, I wanted to move on. I already had the most senior marketing role in Aviva and I felt having done that for eight years that really there needed to be fresh leadership on on the brand and on the strategy so I was in discussion about stepping away and and going into the portfolio career that I now enjoy Um, but what happened was there was a a drama to be honest on the board where um, the the executive were presented and the board were presented with data around the progress of gender equality in the organisation. Aviva didn't monitor or report on much else and the the numbers were going the wrong way. And what's interesting is many people will be aware there's been a big push in the UK to have at least 30% representation of, of women on boards and we had that level of representation. And when this data was shared, one of the men made the mistake of saying, well, we're no worse than anybody else. And 
the non-executives um, exploded with fury. And in fairness, it wasn't just the women. It was also some of the, the men who were non-execs and had come from other industries uh, and found that reaction quite complacent. Um, so I was sitting at my desk and I got this call saying, um, there's, there's been this difficulty. The, the board have told the executive that if they don't see some dramatic improvement over the next year, it's going to affect their bo bonus. So there was a real burning platform from their point of view. Um, and because I was the chair of Stonewall and because I'd always been vocal on diversity and inclusion in that capacity, they simply imagined that I would be able to do this role. That wasn't my reaction, in fairness. I, I thought, that, what on earth makes you think I can do this? Uh, so I asked for some time to think about it, and I came to the conclusion that there were three things that I needed in place in order to do it. The first was that I'd been offered the role of diversity director, and I said I wanted to be called inclusion director because I think the word diversity is reductive and the word inclusion and now people talk about belonging would, would signal that this was for everybody and it wasn't something against men. Um, secondly, I insisted that I had to have a reporting line into one of the board directors um, who was commercial. So I, I in fact ended up reporting into the UK chief executive and the reason I wanted that was because my background is marketing and I really wanted this to be positioned right from the get-go as because of commercial uh, growth and improvement, that this was not a, a sideline of HR anymore, that the reason we were tackling the topic of inclusion was because it was a commercial imperative. And the third thing was I insisted because I was being given barely any team and barely any budget because there was no history of doing this. So you can imagine there was no budget sitting on the ground for me to, to pick up and no team in place. I said I had to sit at the top table of the chief people officer. So although I didn't want it positioned as an HR initiative, it was really important to me that I was at every people leadership team. I remember this was a global uh, organisation. So I, I sat at the top table with the chief people officers for Europe, North America, the UK, uh, Asia, and, uh, and so on, so that I could influence their plans and their spending. So trying to build in this notion of, of this being integral to commercial success, but also integrating it into um, all HR policies and practices. That's amazing. So it's, it sounds like you, you had a very, you, you lost, I don't want to say a plan, but it sounds like you had a very, you were thinking about the things that you needed to do to make a difference. And just from a personal point of view, did it, you know, once you got there, even though you kind of, you had that plan, you had a, you had a, an idea of what you wanted to do and how you wanted to do it and who you needed to influence, did it feel intimidating? I mean, did you go, oh gosh, wow, this is a little scary? Oh, I was, I was absolutely overwhelmed. If, if I tell you that I got the phone call on a Wednesday, I agreed to, and that all my terms were agreed to on the Friday and on the Tuesday, I was flown out to a global senior leaders conference um, in, in Poland <laughs> uh, 
for my for my role to be announced on stage um that was how quickly it happened and I was then given three weeks to come up with a paper <laughs> to submit to the board to review at the January board meeting so um yes it was it was it was overwhelming in one way but it was thrilling in another because all of that told me how incredibly seriously this was being taken I had that endorsement from the group chief executive at the you know so the the top 200 senior leaders from around the world before I even knew what my plan was and the board wanted to hear from me in January so um yes that that was that was exciting but I had no team and no money and <laughs> no plan, actually. I quickly came up with one. Well, it sounds like it went incredibly well for you um, because, as, as we talked about, you were responsible for introducing equal parenting leave at Aviva. And my goodness, that was undeniably a massive achievement. I mean, you must have done a lot, influenced a lot there and had a lot of interesting discussions. Would you say that's the most proud achievement that you had in that role? Or potentially was it something else that was not so apparent? Well, I think that in the end was the the, the big ticket item because it was it required a lot of investment uh, because if you can imagine a massive gender pay gap and um, great gender inequality at a senior level and the fact that fathers can be fathers through most of their life, whereas with women there's a limited window, the average pay of the average father who was going to take parental leave was going to be a significant amount of money. And the reason I was very proud was because we, which is unprecedented for Aviva, we launched it in five markets simultaneously. So we launched it in Canada, Ireland, um, the UK, France and Singapore. So it was a really, really bold statement of intent. And what we did was we said, whatever the mother has in that market, in that country, the father will get the equivalent. And that included same-sex uh, relationships, surrogacy, adoption. And, um, you know, that, that was, give, given how people generally feel about diversity and inclusion, which is, it's, it's a movement against straight white men. You know, these awful phrases like pale male and stale that get bandied about. To do something so powerful, which everyone acknowledges, is probably the thing that does most to positively impact on women. I was effectively reaching the majority of the organisation. Um, Lisa, say my business case was blown out of the water because I had to try and assume how many, how many fathers did we think would take it up. And at the time, about 15% of fathers took some kind of um, parental leave in the UK that was longer than two weeks. So I just doubled it. I thought, okay, lots of lots of men are saying to me, oh, the men will never do it. In fact, I think it's why, I mean, I'm saying, I'm saying this to go on record, but I think in a couple of the countries, that was the view, you know, we'll do this, but the men are not going to take it up, which of course was ex in itself was a reaction I wanted because then you could say, well, why aren't you taking it up? Because, because women do it so why aren't you doing it and then you flush out all these discussions about career interruption and all the things that I I wanted to happen um so so it, it 
I was very proud of that, but there was a lot I did organisationally to make it sustainable so that when I left, it didn't rely on me. One of my greatest concerns was that I personally would be so associated with everything that the, that the momentum would be lost when I left. And I knew that, that I, I, in fact, I just did it for a couple of years. That was always my plan. I, I was about to go on a portfolio career and I just delayed it for a bit to get this established. So um, the things that I did organisationally to make sure that it was embedded and would live on, many on many, many other policies um, and in other markets that were not reached by the equal parental leave. I'm very proud of that too. That's great. That's wonderful. And it's, and gosh, I didn't think of it like that, but yeah, the take up of it from, from men, I mean, who knows who's going to do it, but, and and I suppose that leads to my next question, you know, about your approach to inclusion. Is it something that you feel, um, you know, your personal approach, stepping away maybe from Aviva here, you know, your thoughts about the factors that need to be considered to affect, affect, you know, a change? Is it, is it, you know, as you mentioned, is it shaking things up a bit? And is it maybe asking those uncomfortable questions? What do you feel about that? Well, there's absolutely no doubt that whilst you can come at this whole topic from the points of a view of, of it being about human rights and social justice, which, which if I was wearing my Stonewall hat is probably how Stonewall think about it. But I think to be realistic in the corporate world, it, it has to be um, described in commercial terms. And every organisation has their own purpose and their own commercial ambition. And they have got to describe for themselves um, why is it that we're doing this? Because if people are not convinced that it's going to have commercial benefits, I think you're, you're going to get resistance. And at Aviva, we wanted to grow the customer franchise. And I, and I was able to make I had lots of evidence to show that we we were not going to grow. It was going to inhibit our rate of growth if we were not more inclusive. Mm. The second thing you need, you've got to have real commitment from the top. I mean, as I've described, the board, the the, the chief executives, that, that's got to be there. And, I, and to be honest, I think the fact that I was the first global inclusion director I'd been there a long time because I worked in marketing I was well known and I was kind of if I may say kind of liked and respected and people knew that I was commercial and they knew I wasn't HR that was actually quite helpful because I was seen as as somebody who was business orientated and it wasn't just uh, you know about people and and I do think this this approach of is your culture inclusive and that and and if it is and the more it is you will get diversity rather than it coming from it from the lens of diversity is very important and it may sound like I'm quibbling you know inclusion and diversity rather than diversity and inclusion but if you just go we must be more diverse it leads people down quite a reductive path of so we have to start counting who we've got of what you start getting into silos of protected characteristics. Um, and, and then you get this, well, we'll prioritise this group over that group, which is really, really unhelpful. Whereas actually what you've got to do is think about the life cycle of your employee. So what are you doing on recruitment? What are you doing on promotion? What are you doing on 
retention um, and 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 therefore at every touch point where employees um, opportunities are being affected you're thinking about it systemically because one of the dangers I find is people go well we'll start at the junior levels we must you know we start with our graduate recruitment or our early entry and we'll focus on that on that end of things and the reason that that's hopeless is because all those young people come along and they look at your organisation they don't see diversity so they don't believe you so you're kind of up against it and very often when you recruit diverse young people you don't necessarily retain them because again they come into an organisation which isn't diverse and whose culture is not inclusive and so inappropriate things are said and done to them and they leave and in fact I think there's increasing evidence particularly amongst um, black people and people of colour that retention is a gigantic problem. The other thing is that that new entrants are disempowered relative to other employees. They are not going to be your change agents. They may look different so you can comfort yourself that you look look across at your your latest um, intake and and visually feel that you see see diversity um, but they are not empowered to change the culture they're simply not which is why senior leadership middle management sponsorship is so utterly crucial and I think people need to be far more imaginative about what they're doing to retain the diversity that they have and also to recruit it at every level um, uh, and and progress people differently. You know, there's a, there's an awful, there's a lack of opportunity given to people even when they when they join that um, inhibits progress. Absolutely. Um, you mentioned progression and how individuals within an organization who are maybe at more senior levels can help. You know, bring others along on their journey and 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 help them. And I wonder if there are any influential individuals without within your journey that had that positive impact and helped you you know make certain decisions um led the way for you and and really inspired you about the choices that you made well the most important person to me was um a man called chris jansen who was the managing director of british gas energy when i was there as the interim marketing director um he was a very inspiring individual anyway he's a brilliant marketeer ex-British Airways and, and Procter and Gamble so I found him on a kind of work front somebody with whom I really connected and we, we were very different people he was very indecisive I was very decisive but the pair of us together did some very very good work because we were so different but it happened that I um, having been married for 16 years and with two boys I fell in love with a woman whilst I was working there. And I didn't realise that coming out was a, was a big deal because I just thought I'd fallen in love with this particular woman. So I still hadn't really gone to the place of saying I was gay. I had just this very surprising thing had happened. I'd fallen in love with this woman called Lucy. And you can imagine it had a terrible impact on my marriage because my husband... Um, guessed that something was going on and I went in to see Chris 
and said, look, Chris, I just need to let you know there's some stuff going on at home. Because I thought it might affect my work. You see, I thought I might be a bit off in meetings. I was very tired. I wasn't sleeping very well. And I, I felt like I'd done on all sorts of things in my career. You should tip your boss off sometimes about stuff that's going on at home, just so that they understand what you're dealing with. And, um, and I said to him, I'm afraid my marriage is in difficulty. I've fallen in love with this woman. So I'm really sorry if um, my work's a bit off, but I'm working it through. And, and in, in all credit to him, he barely raised an eyebrow that I, that I told him I'd fallen in love with the woman. And he asked me if I wanted any time off. And I said, no, I was absolutely fine. And the conversation moved on. And he never mentioned it again. But the other thing he did... And I, hearing other people's coming out stories and the stuff that goes on at work, I realised how incredibly lucky um, I was. But later on, when I left British Gas and went to join Aviva, um, I was offered this role. Actually, it was the chief, uh, it was the uh, marketing operations director, and I was invited to say what salary I wanted. And I honestly hadn't got a clue. And I went to talk to him. And because I was interim, he knew I was leaving. He was recruiting someone else. And he said, don't, don't worry, Jan. I know a few headhunters. Give me the job description. I'll send it to them. And I'll, I'll ask them what, what, what sort of package should you expect? Um, anyway, he, he duly did that and came back with the information. And um, I couldn't believe what they were suggesting I should ask. But I did. And I got it. He, he also, whilst I was actually there, um, I went in on a six-week assignment and uh, after six weeks, he called me in and said, uh, what do you think of your daily rate? Because um, I, I, had char I had come up with a fee based on six weeks and it was obvious because the CMO had left and I'd become the interim C CMO that I, I was going to be there for a lot longer than that. And I immediately assumed he thought my fee was too high and started defending it and how I'd already offered a volume discount and, and so on and so on. You know, why? What do you think? And he said to me, I don't think we're paying you enough. And, and, and it's the only time that someone has spontaneously offered me any kind of pay rise. I've always had to, to fight for it. I think, I think we all do. So in the space of 10 months of working for this man, he was utterly accepting of my coming out story. He spontaneously increased my consultancy fee and he then helped me negotiate a really big package. Well, for me, uh, I'm sure I earned it um, for when I went into, into Aviva. An amazing man, absolutely amazing. Crumbs, I think we could all do with a Chris in our lives. Yes. Which kind of slightly is a good entree into the next part of your life because, I mean, you, you've been a, you're a real change agent, um, but you've changed everything around again in, in the last kind of 18 months, um, obviously stepping out of your role at Aviva. Um, you also stood down as chair from from Stonewall in in April after of seven years um chairing that um and um recently qualified as as an executive coach um how how uh, is inclusion still going to be 
part of your future life. Um, how do you see the next year panning out for you? Well, I, I mean, it's, it's, it's a passion for me. Um, and I think having been chaired of Stone, chair of Stonewall, whether I like it or not, people invite me to speak at events, um, particularly around Pride. Um, I, I'm also very close to Lady Phil, who founded UK Black Pride. Um, and and I am, I've just um, this morning been invited to uh, join a, a group at the Chartered Management Institute who are looking into progression on race. So I think I feel incredibly lucky that I'm going to continue to be invited to participate in discussions on diversity and inclusion. But in particular, in my coaching practice, I very much hope to find my way to help coach leaders who want to be inclusive. Um, it, it, it's, it's something I'm passionate about. I think it's an incredibly difficult thing to do. It's very important these days that, that leaders are secure in their own values and their own views and are able to create the kind of environment for their teams that they think is appropriate. And, and often it's, it can be at odds sometimes with where the corporate organisation is. Um, and I really want to help people who are trying to make change in their own sphere of influence, in their, you know, running their departments or their, or their teams or, or, or um, organisations, uh, but also try to change the wider organisation or industry in which they sit. So what I find is, I, I think because of the nature of my background, people are attracted to me who want to be influential and who want to do more than just the day job and really change the culture in their organisation and their industry. And you've done all of this, or at least part of this, during what you know lockdown and all things that have been the delights of COVID. Um, has it had... Um, you know, has that have been positive or, or negative? How, how has that Im impacted um, how you're approaching um, co coaching? Um, well, it, it's, it's affected the way I could do coaching because there are very few people I could meet face to face. So we've all, we've all had to discover Zoom. And, and what's remarkable is how well you could do coaching uh, still through Zoom. So that's a brilliant thing. I would say generally that um, my experience is that never have more people wanted coaching and never have they felt less able to find the budget <laughs> to, to do it. So I hope that's something that, that um, changes. But in the coaching that I, that I have been doing, because I have a number of clients, there's absolutely no doubt that the way in which they have been trying to navigate the last six months bubbles up into those coaching sessions. So whether it be about the mental health and well-being about their teams, whether it's about their own stress and their own ability to cope with what's, um, what's going on and some of the terrible decisions at a senior level, people, you know, people are having to make people redundant and you know, all, of, all of that is 
you know, deeply wounding to people, some of the reorganisation that they're, they're having to leave. And, and coaching is a place where you can, you know, you can download some of that and, and, and think through your, your feelings so you're still able to perform. But there's no doubt that um, in particular two things that, that have come across uh, into coaching. One is how um, difficult LGBT communities have found it in particular because there's been, there's been no pride events. Um, LGBT people can often find themselves locked into a household which is not very welcoming to them. They're no longer get able to get access to their communities, the, the clubs and friendship groups that, that they would go to for um, support. And there are, there are people who are, who are not out at home. You know, bizarrely, you can find that there are people who are out at work but not out in their domestic circumstances. So that's an extra layer of stress. But the biggest, biggest thing has to be Black Lives Matter. I don't think there's a coaching session I've had in the last um, three months where that has not cropped up. Cropped up. I think uh, it's very much on the mind of leaders. Um, I think they are being challenged, rightly so, by their workforces about it. And, um, and it's been a very difficult subject for people. Because I, I mean, I'm pleased. I'm not pleased at what caused it, but I'm very, very pleased at the new renewed vigour with which people are wanting to address racism and the way in which it, it has come to the UK in a way that I, I, I hope is getting more and more appropriate. I think at the beginning there was a sort of voyeurism of watching what, you know, oh, well, that, that's the States and that's where slaves were and, and isn't it shocking and they've all got these guns and the police are, the police are violent and I think actually there's been a second wave of maturing in the conversation here in the UK about actually what our history is and our responsibilities with regard to uh, slavery in partic particular, which I think people find unbelievably difficult topic to talk about. Um, and we're thinking about our own police and our own structural racism here. And I very much welcome that. Are there any, just on a, on a personal level, um, are there any kind of working practices or, or, or personal things that, that you've, you've changed, adapted during COVID that you intend to, to keep going, hopefully when we return a little bit more to normal working practices? Well, I suppose I'm a bit different because I'm, I'm like a sole trader. So I've always been wonderfully, you know, in command of, of how I work. I've always been able to work smart, as I call it, working flexibly. I've been working, um, running businesses, working from home since my son was born, who's now 26. So um, what I welcome is that I think the whole nation gets it now. So what's very pleasing to me is that there's an acceptance about let's work smart, you know, let's meet when it's important to meet, let's, let's not hold it against people if they need to work in a different way. I'd never even heard of Zoom before, and now I have an account. Um, so uh, I, I, hope to, I hope as a nation we keep um, flexible working, smart working. However, I do... I do hate the isolation and it seems to me we've gone from 
mainly people feeling they need to be at their place of work to now people being stuck at home. And that's not flexible working. That's not smart working. Actually, what we need is a balance and a mix of all of these things. And I actually think they're they like water going up and down a beach. They ebb and flow when you're at different life stages or might have health difficulties. So I don't think even in my career I've ever although I've been lucky and it's always been an option, it's, it's, it's ebbed and flowed. There are times when I really wanted to be at the workplace a lot, um, every day and all day, and working with people at weekends because it was an intensive period of, of working together. Uh, and there are other times when you want to be able to think or you don't have time for the commute, you could get more done. You want to be able to work from home. So I just think there's a, a bit of recalibration yet to happen on on that front um and i'm very keen that people get back to their workplaces as much as they sensibly can over the next quarter um i i'm just to be bold i think many people are being a little bit feeble about it and a little bit selfish because there's a danger that we talk about the haves and the have-nots we're segmenting ourselves into workers who are fortunate enough to be able to work at home and those who can't. And unless those of us who are fortunate enough to have the option start getting back into our workplaces and helping the hinterland of of service um, providers and retailers that surround our workplaces, we are literally going to kill great swathes of the economy whilst we um, stay in our homes. So... On that, on that front, I have been getting, getting on the tube and going in and meeting people. Um, I've run two board meetings where everyone has been present in the room and it was absolutely fantastic to, to be in the same room. We had a four-hour board meeting and people had energy at the end rather than feeling sapped of it, which is what happens on Zoom. It's an incredible feeling when when that happens too. The, you know, just to have that that enthusiasm again, seeing people and being in collaborative. Um, we have time for one last question, Jan. And you know, the listeners today um, encompass a very well connected, influential, and sophisticated audience of professional communicators and marketeers. And I suppose whether they're in the workplace or out of the workplace, um, you, uh, you know, face to face or not face to face. It's a big question. What would you suggest to us as an industry that we can do to embrace change and be responsible and inclusive leaders in our own business communities? The, 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 the biggest thing inclusive leaders need to do is educate themselves and listen more. And for many people, when they're leading, they have got to where they are through advocacy, being articulate, speaking up in meetings, um, being assertive, all those things that we know are are often very valuable in, in leaders. But I think to be an inclusive leader, it's about asking more questions and being more inquiring and creating space for, for other people. So I think really making sure that if you have a diverse team, you get all their opinions. I mean, it may sound really obvious, but, you know, it's not enough just to have a diverse team. How are you actually going to get those diverse points of views contributing to the task at hand? Um, and I think sometimes we're busy and we're in a rush, and certainly at the moment, 
everybody's working really hard and really long hours and, and being quite stressed. So being thoughtful about how you include other voices actively, it is incumbent on you to ask for it and, and, and uh, address that bias that we expect people to be ambitious and speak up and lean in and all, all this stuff that, that we tend to say. Um, you're not going to get the, the rich benefit of the diversity of people around you if you're not in, a, in an inquiring mindset. I mean, there's so much I could say about this. Um, there's so much to be done. You've also, you've got to not, you've got to show that, you know, you're prepared to take it on the chin when you get it wrong. It's incredibly mortifying and embarrassing to say or do the wrong thing. But as the leader, you have to signal by talking about your mistakes before anyone else does. And the more you're prepared to admit to when you were clumsy, when you didn't know, when you didn't understand, you're the one who's going to have to go first, I'm afraid. Um, People are not going to speak up about what's not working for them if you're not prepared to admit when people gave you. And, And it's very easy to do. People will, if you're lucky, they'll come to you privately and say, when you said that, it made me feel this. Um, with their permission, you want to be able to share those kinds of stories. Absolutely, and I think, and I think, um, I think that's a really good point, especially about listening and educating yourself. Um, Jan, I just wanted to thank you so much for being here with us today, educating our audiences. Hopefully you've given them more of an inquisitive mindset about this topic. I wish we had more time because there's lots to talk about, but it was just an absolute great pleasure to hear your thoughts today. And we thank you very, very much. Oh, thank you for having me. Thank you so much, both of you. 